As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Psychedelic drugs are mostly known for opening the doors of perception during the swirling 60s. More recently, they've become a performance-enhancing supplement for Silicon Valley types. But the drugs are also being investigated as a surprisingly effective treatment for depression, anxiety, and more. Like, wow, man. First up, though. British Prime Minister Theresa May will officially step down as Conservative Party leader today. She announced her resignation two weeks ago after failing repeatedly to negotiate Britain's withdrawal from the European Union. MPs have been unable to agree on a way to implement the UK's withdrawal. As a result, we will now not leave on time with a deal on the 29th of March. This delay is a matter of great personal regret for me. Brexit is a challenge that will be equally vexing for her successor. Nevertheless, plenty of people would like a chance. The leadership race officially starts on Monday, and candidates have already started politicking, including Environment Secretary Michael Gove. I believe that I'm ready to unite the Conservative and Unionist Party, ready to deliver Brexit, and ready to lead this great country. Theresa May will remain as caretaker prime minister until the contest is decided by a series of votes over the next six weeks or so, not by the public, but by parliamentarians and Conservative Party members. The race kicks off against a backdrop of politics fractured by Brexit. In a bellwether by-election in the city of Peterborough yesterday, the opposition Labour Party only narrowly beat the candidate fielded by the newly minted Brexit Party, led by the bombastic Nigel Farage. 108 times Theresa May told us we were leaving on March the 29th. The reason I founded the Brexit Party is because we didn't. The Tories are beset on all sides, and the race to replace Mrs May has been less than inspiring. The Conservative leadership race has been an enormous disappointment so far. This is the race to see who will replace Theresa May, not just as the leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party, but as Prime Minister of the country. Adrian Wooldridge writes Badgett, our column about British politics. It's been a farce, partly because of the number of people. At one point, it reached 13, and it's a bit smaller than that now because they've changed the rules so that you need to get eight nominees in order to come forward and be a candidate. All of these candidates are offering to spend money on this, that, and the other to reduce taxes while increasing spending, thus throwing away the Conservative Party's hard-earned reputation as the party of fiscal prudence. They're also beating their chests to prove who will be the toughest on Europe. It's a panda fest, and it brings to mind what happened at the Republican Party race when Donald Trump won. Too many candidates saying too many stupid things and ending up with the greatest bloviator of them all winning. So you say everyone's coming out of the woodwork. Who's on the long list? There are some serious names here. You have a former foreign secretary who's also a long-standing health secretary. You have a former Brexit secretary. You have the current home secretary. You have the current environment secretary. 
and a number of less well-known people who are nevertheless quite interesting. So although it's too big a field, it does contain within it some serious people. Were you to pick three, what three would you pick? I would say the three who are most likely to end up on the shortlist are Boris Johnson, who by a long way is the favorite at the moment. He's got the most supporters. He's running a very good and disciplined campaign. And of course, he has global name recognition. The second one is Michael Gove, the current environment secretary, who is well-liked within the party, a serious and substantial figure and a big thinker, and Jeremy Hunt. Jeremy Hunt was health secretary for six years, making him the longest serving health secretary in the history of the country. Very, very difficult job, which he did very well, I think, and is currently the foreign secretary. So he's the the establishment candidate, the safe pair of hands with a really stellar CV. Any other candidates that we should make note of? Those are the most likely three, but one more is worth considering. If Boris Johnson is too weak and waffly for you, you go for Dominic Raab, who was very briefly the Brexit secretary, and he's sort of beating his chest as the purest of the pure. And he's even talked about proroguing parliament. That's essentially dissolving parliament until the moment when, on October the 31st, when Britain leaves the EU. It's um, an extraordinary idea for a minority government. But there is a sort of sense on the right of the Tory party that nothing matters more than Brexit. You have to do anything imaginable to bring it about. And he is going for that vote. And what about the other three you mentioned? What, what are their, what's their stance on Brexit? Well, Boris is really going for the Brexit vote. And he says that Britain has to deliver Brexit. And he's willing to contemplate leaving without a deal. He says that we can't possibly take that off the table. He doesn't want to leave without a deal, I think. But he thinks we have to pull out all the stops in order to get some sort of deal. And he's a bit of a magical thinking person. So Boris says what really matters is we have to believe in Brexit. And as long as we believe in it firmly enough, strongly enough, something will come through. And the Irish border problem, that can be dealt with. And the disagreements with the EU, that can be dealt with. So he sort of brushes aside all the complexities. Michael Gove is, I think, a much more serious thinker. He understands the danger of leaving without a deal. He's been environment secretary and agriculture minister and the rest of it. So he understands just what will happen to our supplies of food and basic products. And he's very, very worried about leaving without a deal. So he claims that we shouldn't make a fetish of leaving on the 31st of October. We should be willing to extend that deadline and we should do everything we possibly can to avoid leaving without a deal. So he's become the voice of responsible Brexit who says we must make a success of it and making a success of it means not doing not doing really foolish things. And strangely enough, having been the, one of the original Brexiteers, he's getting a lot of support from Remainers or, or soft Brexiteers within the party. And Mr. Hunt? Well, Mr. Hunt was originally a Remainer and has sort of overcompensated uh, for the fact that he was a Remainer by being a bit of a hard Brexiteer man. And he's said all sorts of things about we must be willing to contemplate leaving without a deal and we mustn't give in to these um, Europeans. So he says that. He he sabre rattles. On the other hand, he tries to present himself as the competent managerial person. He's been a very good manager and he says, I'll go over and negotiate a better deal and this is the way I'd go about negotiating a deal. So he's created a rather schizophrenic image. On the one hand, the buccaneering Brexiteer, on the one hand, the responsible manager. And I think that is actually undermining his position a little bit. So those are the front runners. But another candidate that's been getting a lot of attention here is Rory Stewart. Why do you think that is? He's aroused an enormous amount of interest. In one sense, you know, he's not going to win. But in another sense, he's raising very interesting questions. So 
there is something else going on other than just a selection process, and that is a sort of an attempt of the party to find a compass and a map for for its future. Brexit is, is clearly the biggest problem that faces any of them, and in fact, the cause of, of Mrs. May's downfall. Do you think any of them has a real chance at, at succeeding at Brexit, if you like? No. Simple as that. I don't, because the problem with Brexit is that any reasonable, manageable deal is worse than the status quo. And so that means that you're trying to sell something that is worse than the current position. You could take a purist position that you either have a managed deal worse than the status quo, or you leave without a deal and set off into uncharted waters. But I don't think any of them can. It's very difficult to to sell a position. I happen to think that the best deal available is still Theresa May's deal. That's the one that did the most to reconcile the competing demands of economic prosperity with honoring the referendum. And that's a very difficult sell. It's a messy compromise. Do you have thoughts on on what all of this means in the in the much longer term, the sort of post-Brexit world for the for the Tory party? Well, I don't think it's much longer term, actually. I think we could easily move into a general election quite quickly after this, because the Conservative Party is a minority party, and that leader might not be able to command the assent of the House of Commons, even the assent of the party. So if there's a vote of no confidence in that leader, then the government will fall. So that leader has to somehow assure the hard right of the Conservative Party that they're going to deliver on Brexit, but also assure the left of the Conservative Party that they won't crash out without a deal. That may prove to be impossible to do. If that's impossible to do, the Queen will have no choice but to say, well, let's resolve this by a general election. And so we could, by the end of the year, have not just a new leader of the Conservative Party, but a new Prime Minister from another party. Adrian, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Two of the brave candidates willing to face all that uncertainty spoke to my colleague Anne McElvoy on this week's episode of The Economist Asks, our interview show. Jeremy Hunt, the foreign secretary, weighed in on the prospect of leaving Europe without an exit deal. I didn't say no deal was political suicide. I said having a general election would be political suicide. And if your only way to deal with a parliament that is blocking no deal was to have a general election, that would be political suicide. I've always believed that we should keep no deal on the table. Um, because and you I think, still think that? I still do. And I also, then it might happen if you keep it on the table. Well, it might be taken away by Parliament, and that's what's already happened this year. That's why we have to be honest about the parliamentary arithmetic that we face. Um, and I've always said that if the only way to deliver Brexit was leaving without a deal, and that really was the only way to do it, then I would do that. But because I think in the end, the democratic risk of not delivering Brexit is higher than the economic risk of no deal. But I would do it with a heavy heart because of the risks to our businesses, the risks to the union. And I would not do it if there was a chance of a good deal that could get through Parliament. And what I want to be is the Prime Minister who gets that good deal on the table. And the International Development Secretary, Rory Stewart, has strong feelings about Boris Johnson, the former Foreign Secretary widely touted as front-runner. And would you work with Boris Johnson if, by chance he became the leader, would you be prepared to stay in the cabinet, work alongside him to deliver the Brexit that you feel that we need on certain terms? No. And it's sad because I'm a cabinet minister. I love my job. I'm deeply proud to be Secretary of State for International Development, but I couldn't do it. His policy is that he's going to try to negotiate with Brussels by October, and if he doesn't, he'll take us out on a no-deal Brexit. 
I cannot possibly back that policy. It is dishonest, it is undeliverable, and it would be deeply damaging to people's trust in politics and to this country. For lots more from both candidates, listen to the latest episode of The Economist Asks. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Humans have used psychedelics such as magic mushrooms for thousands of years. Perhaps the sacred mushroom has given them a psychic insight. But I can guarantee it, man. If you take a psychedelic, something will happen. <laughs> Heaven or hell. But after the excesses and ensuing moral panics of the 1960s, this trend toward drugs has alarmed every responsible segment of the community. For they, know they were widely banned. Recently, however, there's been a revival of interest in the drugs. Psychedelics have come into vogue, with Silicon Valley types extolling the virtues of microdosing LSD to enhance performance at work. Legendary Apple boss Steve Jobs described an acid trip as one of the most important experiences of his life. But more importantly, recent studies suggest that psychedelics could be used to treat conditions such as depression, anxiety, and a range of addictions. And magic mushrooms, which contain the active ingredient psilocybin, are in the vanguard. As attitudes are changing, so is the law. Oakland, California is just the latest American city to decriminalize magic mushrooms. Their effects are well known. People who take magic mushrooms tend to report that they've had a mystical experience of some sort. Emma Duncan is our social policy editor. Something like feeling at one with the universe. I was experiencing some incredibly real living link between myself and the rest of the human organism. Or having a great revelation of some vast truth. The brotherhood of man. I really believe it. And that makes everything fall into place for them, though they can't afterwards usually tell you what that truth might be. But Emma, how might psilocybin work on the brain to help those with illnesses like depression? That's pretty speculative at the moment. Some research has been done with magnetic resonance imaging, basically taking photographs of what's going on in the brain. And there seem to be two mechanisms at work. There's a thing called the default mode network, which if you think of what your brain is doing when you're daydreaming, thinking about yourself, thinking about the past, planning for the future, not engaged in a very specific task of the minute. That's the default mode network operating. And it goes into overdrive with depressed people who tend to close in on themselves and think more and more about themselves. And the default mode network is kind of switched off, it seems, by taking psilocybin. And at the same time, you get a lighting up of communications networks between other bits of the brain. So it's as though maybe new pathways are being forged within the brain. And then these kind of old patterns of thinking 
are overridden. I mean, one of the scientists I talked to said it's kind of like rebooting, you know, press control, alt delete, and you sort of clear things up somewhat. That explanation resonates with the experiences reported by some of the patients who took psilocybin in trials. Psilocybin, unlike any other drug available, it comes in from an angle, like it's like a vector, and suddenly we're able to look in another direction. It gave me uh, a viewpoint, you know, a, a different perspective on, on how I was dealing with stuff. And, and so I saw the grief as an ulcer that I was just holding on to that was not helping me. So I was able to let go of that. There's one really interesting study um, which shows that if you look at the brains of people who do long-term meditational practice and those who've taken psilocybin, similar things seem to be going on. So one of the scientists I spoke to said, well, it may be that meditation is kind of a long hike up a mountain and psilocybin is a helicopter ride to the top. So, Emma, there seems to have been a real push recently in terms of decriminalizing psilocybin. Yeah, so Oakland just this week has decriminalized a range of psychedelic drugs, including magic mushroom psilocybin. Denver did that last month. There are moves in Iowa where a state senator has filed a bill to do something similar. And Oregon is doing something slightly different uh, where there's a campaign to get a ballot to legalize the therapeutic use of psilocybin. Well, I mean, for a long while there, the idea of using hallucinogens in a therapeutic way, decriminalizing them, would have been absolutely unthinkable. What's behind this push for for psilocybin? Well, there's quite a lot going on on drugs liberalization generally. So I think the whole wave of decriminalization and medical use of marijuana has opened people's minds to the idea of other drugs being seen in that way. Ketamine, another illegal drug, just got licensed as S-ketamine for use against depression. And then there's, you know, there's a whole thing going on in Silicon Valley, the fashionableness of microdosing psychedelics to enhance your creativity. I think that has intrigued people a lot as well. But the big change really is that there's a lot of interesting research going on in labs around the world. You know, we're still very much at the stage of very small studies coming out in dribs and drabs. And one of the reasons for that, actually, is that the drug is so hard to get hold of because governments haven't regarded it with much favor. So it's been quite difficult to get funding for this stuff. But some of these small trials are showing quite promising results in reducing depression, in reducing anxiety, in being quite effective in getting people to stop smoking and stop drinking. And the FDA, America's Food and Drugs Administration, is intrigued enough by the studies that it's seen to give what they call breakthrough status to a larger trial of psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. And that means that they want to, quote, expedite the trials of this drug. So if there is all of this therapeutic potential for, for drugs like psilocybin, then it makes you wonder why they were outlawed in the first place. Well, yes. I mean, there was a huge amount of research that went on into their therapeutic potential in the 50s and 60s. 
But all of the psychedelics just got washed away in the moral panic that followed Timothy Leary, who was the founder of the Harvard Psilocybin Project. His call to America's youth to turn on, tune in and drop out of the responsibilities that their parents had planned for them. So, you know, everything pretty much got banned in 1970 and the research was shut down at the same time. Well, I mean, there must have been at least a nugget of truth in the notion that they're dangerous drugs, right? Yeah, messing with your mind is a dangerous thing. And these drugs particularly do have a very powerful effect on the brain. And people who have had psychotic episodes certainly shouldn't take them. People with a familial history of schizophrenia shouldn't take them. But uh, you don't die from taking too much of them. They don't harm anyone except the person who's taking them. On a schedule of the relative dangers of 20 legal and illegal mind-altering drugs, British scientists put magic mushrooms, psilocybin, at the bottom. So with all that in mind and on the basis of what you've learned and heard, how long do you think until psilocybin is licensed is a, is a drug you can just get? Well, you have to be reasonably cautious about these things in the sense that about half of depression-related drugs fail at this stage. You know, if everything goes very smoothly, four to five years. But there are some researchers who are worried that the decriminalization effort could backfire because these can be dangerous things. There can be accidents. There can be newspaper headlines which could unleash another moral panic, which could cause backlash. Emma, thanks very much for coming in. Thanks very much. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here on Monday. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit Moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.